Welcome to episode 224 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Cortland Allen. He's the founder of Indie Hackers. Now he's over at Stripe working on Indie Hackers there. We talked a lot about building a, an independent business and then what that means to move inside a company as well. And also just navigating a career and finding what you want to work on from engineering to design. There's no such thing as a career. It's to all new startups, to blogging, to acquisition, the whole gamut. Uh, we had a great time, but before we get into it, I want to thank our sponsor. Did you say the whole gambit or the whole gamut? The whole gamut. First sponsor, this episode is brought to you by a new salsa that Bryn and I discovered. Uh, well, I discovered it and introduced it to Bryn. Is brought to and you in the sense that it's sitting next to us. And it's tingling in our mouths. It's very good. At this moment. Um, but we're not going to name it because it's... We want the supply to ourselves. I've literally found it in one grocery store in all of San Francisco. And so it's mine. And you can't have it. Our first sponsor this week is Fuse. Fuse makes it easy so that you can stop prototyping and just start building actual whole apps. Uh, you can write it in their .ux syntax that lets you write things in a component-based, composable way. Uh, so you can actually structure apps that will compile to Swift or Android. And you can just... Java? Kotlin? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. One of those things. There's, Whatever there's Android's like written and stuff. in. Who even has an Android phone? It'll actually compile. So you can build things in a way that makes sense as a designer and then just ship it directly. Yeah, and it also adds a lot of flexibility. So if you do need native features, you can add those into your project directly. So you can still add in Objective-C or Swift or Java, but uh, your underlying code base for all of your project um, across devices is just going to be one one folder with all of the .ux markup, and then you can inject all the special sauce that you need. Uh, it's really powerful, and it's designed for teams. Uh, it works collaboratively. It works in real time so that as you're making changes, your team can know about it. Uh, you can work with real live data, and it also stops you from doing dumb stuff with a debugging tool, basically just debugging JavaScript, which is really awesome. So it points you to exactly where problems are going to be in your code. Uh, they even have like a problems panel that just exposes all the issues that you're working on. And again, at the end of the day, all of this is being compiled down into Objective-C and Java, which means you're shipping real native code to the App Store. So the way I like to think about it is rather than spending a bunch of time learning how to use a new prototyping tool, instead just learn how to use the Fuse UX markup, build an actual real app that handles uh, your transitions, your animations, uh, routing, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, you have a real app that you can ship to users on their devices. Uh, it's incredibly powerful and it's easy to get started. You can check out some examples and all the documentation at fusetools.com. And if you're working with a team and want to upgrade your workflow, try Fuse Pro. Uh, it gets you access to basically a GUI that wraps all of the power of Fuse. Uh, and call, It's called Fuse Studio. And that comes on the pro plan, which you can get 70% off when you use our promo code. For a year. For a year. But you have to sign up by December 31st. So that promo code is DD for design details at checkout. That is going to save you 70% off the pro plan. But if you're just want to do a side project or you just want to play around for a little bit first, it's totally free. Or you free. just don't make money yet. Or you just don't make money. It's free. They want you to try it out. So give it a try at FuseTools.com. Uh, download some examples, play around, and ship apps. Hey, I'll do what I want. Don't tell now. me everything I have to do. Yeah, but do this. <laughs> Thanks, Fuse. And our second sponsor is a new sponsor. Uh, it's coming from TopLevel.Design, and they're excited about the new .Design 
domain extension. It's new TLD or new-ish, and it's being picked up by tons of companies that you've probably already visited, like Facebook.design, Airbnb.design, Medium.design, on and on and on. All these companies are picking up this .design TLD because it's uh, memorable, it's brandable, it fits in with the community, it matches the content of the website, and now is the best time for you to grab your own .design domain name. Uh, before all of them get snatched up. We know how impossible it is to get good .coms these days. Uh, so they're offering a promotion, help you get the perfect .design domain for you. Uh, great for a personal site, uh, especially for your email address, if you're a contractor or freelancer, or even if you just wanted to forward it to your Dribble or portfolio or whatever. Uh, and this offer comes from porkbun.com, which uh, is offering a free year of email hosting and uh, who is privacy and SL certs with any domain registration. Did you say SL certs? SSL certs. SSL. Secure. certs. Super secure lingo certs. The annual. The renewal is only 35 bucks for a year. So it's as cheap as you're going to find anywhere. If you want to register your own .design domain, now's the time. Go to porkbun.com and use the coupon code SPEC. That's S-P-E-C, all capitals, at uh, checkout. That's uh, registrar.porkbun.com. To be clear, this doesn't work for the premium ones. Yeah, yeah, it won't work for the premium, like, super, like, super high-value domains. But, you know, your, your name's probably not premium, unless well, your name, name is, is premium. Bryn. Well, yeah, they know you. They know you're no, going you to look that up. Just Bryn Premium Jackson. It's a great time to get a, a in on this new TLD gold rush as they say uh, so don't miss out go to porkbun.com and use the promo code spec S-P-E-C at checkout and that's going to get you that $35 a year deal with uh, who is privacy SSL certs and a free year of email hosting boom thanks to toplevel.design for sponsoring and with that let's get into episode 224 with Cortland Allen Hello, everybody. My name is Cortland Allen. I'm the creator of a site called ndhackers.com. Uh-huh. My background is as a developer. So I have a CS degree from MIT. I am kind of a full stack developer. So I do a lot of front end work, back end work. Uh, I used to want to be a designer. So I did a lot of design before I ever learned to code. And my passion is really about starting companies and trying to become financially independent and helping other people do the same thing. And that's why I started ndhackers.com. Uh okay, so you're front end, back end into design, mm-hmm. how- but made a good choice going away from it. Yeah. <laughs> nice word. Well, how comfortable are you with the word unicorn? With a unicorn? That's isn't that what you are? I guess you could you could describe. <laughs> no, that's a horse with a weird thing on its yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, that's a totally different thing. Aren't, I'm a human being. Aren't you a mystical beast uh, <laughs> known in folklore and fairy tale? I think everything nowadays is a unicorn. <laughs> if you're a billion dollar company, you're a unicorn. If you have more than one skill set, unicorn. Unicorn. If you're in the polyamorous community and you're like a bisexual woman, that's referred to as a unicorn. Wait, it's, really? Yeah, really. Wow. So everything these days is a unicorn. Well, if we call everything a unicorn, they don't have to be extinct anymore, and we're like good. Yeah. Right. Like, if everything's a unicorn, then nothing's a unicorn. So, what's going to be the new unicorn? A narwhal? A horse? A narwhal is a good one. Or just a regular horse. (laughs) Dude, that's so horse like of you. Um, Cool. Where are you from? I grew up in the Deep South, in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. And then I I left as soon as I could. The second I turned 18. (laughs) Why? You know, there's something about living in the suburbs that's uh, 
magical that's, and enchanting and ex- diverse. Yeah, and... that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it just it builds up this energy in you, like, <laughs> and you just want to leave. At least that's yeah. how I, I felt. Yeah. yeah. For apparently for other people, it builds up an energy to make them want to stay. But I I needed to get out and see the world, and uh, I immediately went to, to college and went to MIT in Boston, and that was great. And I really haven't looked back. I haven't moved back to any sort of rural suburban area since then. It's always been big cities. Had you uh, left Atlanta before leaving at 18? I had visited other places. Like we went on a trip to Canada once for a week, you know, and I'd been other places in the South, but I'd never been to like a big city. I'd never been to New York City. I'd never been to San Francisco or LA or Chicago. So I'd always kind of looked at those with a sort of, you know, mysticism and reverence, like, oh, I can't wait to move there. And the other cool thing that I discovered when coming to, when going to Boston was that when you go to a big city, there are a ton of people who are good at one thing. So in Boston, it was academics. There's like a ton of schools there. It's yeah. a huge college town. And it's like the smartest <laughs> professors researching like the latest stuff is there. San Francisco is obviously tech, et cetera. But in small town suburbs, you don't really get very much of that. There's a lot of brain drain. So mm-hmm. I think the second I left, it was a pretty much sealed deal and I was never going to go back. How does that make your family feel? <laughs> I don't know how much they know about that. Well, you, you, you <laughs> are they going to listen to this? They're like, "What the fuck?" Oh yeah, my mom will definitely be listening. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Cortland's mom. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, mom. Uh, what were you doing as a kid that made you want to get out so bad? Uh, you know, I when I was in elementary school, I had two loves. One of them was computers, uh, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was it was the '90s, and so there was like this whole dot com boom, and so all the adults were very familiar with this. But as mm-hmm. a kid, it's like I wasn't investing in stocks. I had no idea what was going rookie on with move. You should have been there, man. I, know, I just like, could have <laughs> taken my twelve dollars and just made like thirty. Yeah, it's uh, a good return. But I spent a lot of time on computers, and adults would ask me to fix stuff, and they were so encouraging because this whole tech boom was going on that they would be like, "Oh, Cortland, you're going to be the next Bill Gates one day." Like, great, I keep doing it. And I was like, I don't know what they're talking about, but like, I'll just keep doing this. And so I got a lot of encouragement to do computer stuff. And at the same time, I really loved smooth jazz, and I idolized Kenny G. And so I took, I took <laughs> holy shit! Yeah, this is great. That is an interesting overlap. <laughs> yeah, uh, so like a, Kenny Gates. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> Kenny Gates. That was what I wanted to be. But I, I eventually came to a, a crossroads where I had to choose one, and I chose computers over over smooth jazz and the saxophone. You fucked up. I know. I could have been. I could have been collecting uh, coins on the subway playing playing my sax. Why did you make that decision? Or did, why did you feel like you had to make a decision? Can, can't you do both? Uh you know, I think. Computers are a lot more. I don't want to. I don't want to piss off any smooth jazz saxophonists out there. But it felt hey, like a lot hey, more creative. Smooth jazz saxophonists, turn off the headphones really quick. Yeah, just <laughs> just you guys can skip out for this part. But there's something about being on like the track of a musician, and not that you have to be on the track. But it was like, okay, well, if I want to be a great saxophonist, then I have to try to get into this band or go to this school for this totally. thing, etc. Whereas on the computer, I would just go home and just fuck around and build whatever websites that I wanted to build. Mm-hmm. There was no rules. There's just do whatever you want to do. Plus, the financial incentives were a lot higher. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I told my band instructor that that was going to be my last year, my sophomore year in high school. He was upset, but uh, I never looked back. Do you still play? No, I don't touch it. It's it's in my closet at home where <laughs> where I haven't really, yeah, I haven't even unzipped the case in, in probably a decade. So I feel like something you'd want to ever go back to now that maybe you've you've been doing computers for a little no, while. No, that phase is over. No. It's over. I think I would pick a different instrument if I were to start again. I would I would maybe do like guitar or, or something that's 
a little bit more. Uh, it's like social, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more socially. standalone. Yeah. It's hard to be like a standalone saxophonist. Well, no one goes to like a campfire and like whips out their saxophone. <laughs> oh my Not god! Yet. I want to go to that campfire. <laughs> that sounds fucking rad, man. Just go chill on the beach. Uh, yeah, can we with go camping together? <laughs> We can give it a try. I, I can't promise you guys will still like me afterwards. Yeah, I think the problem would be the sand, right? Well, I like, think, yeah, I think most Kenny G like music videos were on a beach. Yeah, so <laughs> he oh. was a pioneer. That's why I respected him. You know, he's a free flowing. No, guy. you no longer respect. Him. Well, you need the hair, and I can't do the Kenny G hair. And he doesn't even anymore either, right? Oh, did he? Did I don't he? Know. I don't know. I've lost track. Kenny, what are you up to? <laughs> Kenny, hit us up. Uh. So how young were you when you were, uh, you already said sophomore you were a sophomore when you made that, that mm-hmm. choice. And so what did it look like for you to go full-time computer boy? What it looked like at that time was me cranking out a lot of crappy websites. Nice. But I would make a website for anything that I could think of. So I was super into video games. I was always in clans and playing games with my friends. And so whenever we did something, it had to have a website. And... I was obsessed with design as well because back in those days, like everything was like table-based layouts mm-hmm. for, and you just, it was just very difficult to make a good looking website, but it was all relative. And so even websites that would look crappy today looked great. And I would spend as much time as I could trying to emulate those designs and copy them and then try to improve my skills so that I could try to get gigs. So I would design like websites for my dad's friends, companies and websites for myself that never really went anywhere, but I wasn't doing very much programming. I, I knew I wanted to be a programmer, but I didn't have any role models in my life who could kind of guide me. It's another thing about growing up in like, small town suburbs. Like people, I was way ahead of everybody, and yet way behind like a bunch of other kids when I ended up going to MIT. That, that's one of the things I find can be most isolating when you're getting into it is like no one else in your area cares what you're talking about at all. Yeah. Like you just can't relate to people anymore at, at a local level. Yeah, it's really rough, and it's it's demotivating because you, you totally you're super excited about this thing. No one else is excited, and then, you know that's probably one of the big reasons I just wanted to leave and, and go somewhere mm-hmm. where people could actually identify with with what I was up to. Now, when you say you weren't programming, you're just saying you like made the table layouts, HTML, CSS mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but not like heavy lifting. Yeah, not heavy lifting, not like the back end type stuff. I was always kind of intimidated by it. And back in those days, if you wanted to learn to code, or at least, you know, the only avenue that I really knew about was you go to the local bookstore and you pick up a book on programming and you start reading through it. And so <laughs> I thought, oh, I like With games. like a CD-ROM in the, in the yeah, front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and I remember I, those. I was like, get these giant game development programming books and I would make <laughs> yeah. it like 30 pages in. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm never going to do this. Uh, so the only thing that I ever did was like HTML and CSS layouts. I think I learned basic and in middle school. And so I'd make these little games with basic. So familiar with like the basic concepts of, you know, for loops and variables and if then statements, et cetera. But I never really built anything substantial that required code. Uh, speaking of basic, have you guys watched this episode of Stranger Things or this season? Yeah, I watched the latest season. Mm-hmm. Are we going to are we going to spoil it for everybody? I, I just well they I, use basic. <laughs> they use basic. <laughs> no, but that's that the was big a bad. very very <laughs> funny very funny scene of Bob typing basic. He's like one keystroke equaled a line of code. Yeah. Open door and then it unlocks the door. That was that was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it was not uh, Hollywood's finest moment in representing programming accurately. I don't think I've ever seen a fine Hollywood moment representing programming I or think, I think, hacking doors and <laughs> i think they do it just to upset real programmers yeah yeah yeah. It's i like westworld's like mild crazy language that had like javascript and swift and like all sorts of shit in it yeah that's great yeah yeah that's true so you graduated high school uh-huh uh 
YMIT. YMIT. Well, heard there are some smart folks up there. Yeah, I mean, it was such a such a great school that it was like a no brainer that once I got in there, I was gonna go. And it was either that or Georgia Tech because I only applied to a couple of schools. And Georgia Tech was where all my friends were going. And it's a great school. There's a lot of great computer scientists who come out of Georgia Tech. But MIT was not in Georgia, which was Wait, a really <laughs> a plus. In Hold the, on. Yeah. <laughs> this doesn't add up. Had a, had a really, it was a really strong point in its favor. Uh, <laughs> and I, I went actually on a visit before I got in. My Latin teacher had convinced me that if you really want to get into a good school, you should go visit and drop by the admissions office and just kind of leave your name with them so they know that you're serious about going. So I did, and I was blown away by MIT and by Boston in general. I mean, the campus is crazy. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the Stata Center there. It's mm-hmm. kind of the computer science building. It's like one of the most originally architected buildings I've ever seen with all sorts of bridges and offices like floating in space <laughs> and uh, all sorts of like, if you walk down the infinite corridor at MIT, you can peer through the windows and see all sorts of like engineering projects and science experiments going on. So the second I went there, I was like, I'm definitely going to go here if I get in. This is ridiculous. Uh, I think now that I have it in my head, I think the only reference I have to what MIT looks like is from Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> I knew you were I've never say been, Hunting. never like taken the time to Google image MIT. <laughs> I think a lot of the scenes from that that movie aren't even from MIT, so you probably, probably have. not. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know anything. Yeah, it's just a lot of windows with math. That's all it is. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of science math. is Scribbled happening here. <laughs> yeah, I think I walk by UCSF every day, and there's like microscopes and shit. I'm like, oh, I bet some real cool science happens in there. <laughs> Uh, so you took computer science. Yeah, I took computer science. And it's funny, I uh, I was probably ready to be done with school when I was a junior in high school. Like, I was just done with school. I was tired. So I'm going to go to a hard one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the time I got to MIT, I was really done with school. I really <laughs> didn't like going to class. Uh, and I, as a result, rarely ever went to class. I spent the vast majority of my time in my dorm room and later in my fraternity just coding stuff. So I would meet different people. Like one of my fraternity brothers, this guy Aaron, when the Facebook platform came out, he was like, hey, we should make a Facebook app. And I hadn't done like too much. I'd never used PHP before or made like use anyone's API. But he was so confident that we could do it that we just started doing it. And so we made like the world's dumbest Facebook app. It was called Fmail. And it was check your Gmail on Facebook. (laughs) Holy (laughs) shit. You're ahead of your time, man. Yeah, it made, <laughs> great. It, it made no sense whatsoever, but no, I think we, we kind of skinned it so it looked like Facebook, so it like, looked clever, it looked like more enticing than it really was. And then we added like a few social features where someone could like upvote your email. <laughs> Shut them. up. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. It made, I like that. It made no sense, but it got a lot of press. And then like every press angle was like, two MIT students build blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this is the first thing that I've ever coded. Uh, and I spent most of my college doing things like that. Which made it ha- pretty hard to do well in school, to be honest. <laughs> uh, learning but, by doing. Yeah, learning by doing and, and just building as many things as possible. Up until then, you said you'd wanted this, like, I want a program, mm-hmm. right? But you were kind of stuck in HTML, CSS land. And now you're programming. Yeah. How did yeah. that feel? It was a big everything transition. You'd, everything you'd imagine. <laughs> I think it was a huge confidence boost actually building an app, having yeah. never built something before. I was like, oh, this thing that always seemed like a black box is actually pretty approachable and learnable. And if you have a project in mind that you want to to do, then it makes the learning like much more bearable. Like if you just pick up a book like I had done in the past and just tried to read about something in the abstract without having something that you really wanted to use that information for, it's not that interesting. 
But uh, once I got in the habit of actually building stuff, it felt like wow, I'm acquiring these superpowers and learning how to I'm learning how to set up a database, I'm learning how to deploy to a server, I'm learning how to do AJAX calls, which back <laughs> yeah. in those days were like just completely new. Next and it's like, level, yeah. And like every single one of those things to learn the basics of it only took like a week or two of just trying something. So I think it felt like the biggest thing that I got out of that experience and, and just going to MIT in general was being surrounded by people who weren't afraid to try new things and learn and and just having this sort of like mental barrier broken down of like, oh, you can actually do these things and you don't need to be afraid of things you don't understand. Did you ever get into the the academic side of it? Like the, no. the CS <laughs> class material bits and bytes kind of stuff? I'm ashamed to say that I never really cared about <laughs> any of the CS stuff. I, okay. Yeah, I, I think like I, I'd probably be like the worst person to get a job at Google. Like I would definitely fail the Google job interview because I would not want to prepare for it. I would not care that much about the runtime of various algorithms because let's face it, the vast majority of like interesting cool apps that you can build don't require any of that knowledge. If you want to like optimize a Google search algorithm and like be engineer number 1,000, then like, yeah, it's great to have that skill set. But for the things that I wanted to build, it was mostly unnecessary. And the things that I needed to learn, I could just pick up on the spot. Well, what do you mean the things you wanted to build? You were still in college. Like, did you already <laughs> have it figured out? Like, this is the kind of stuff I want to do? I want to uh, build Facebook apps for the, for the rest of my days? It wasn't Facebook apps. It was just something. Like, even as a kid, I always wanted to build random things. Like, if we played a fun board game, my friends and I, then I would say, let's build our own board game. And my friends would be like, no, that sounds like a chore. But to me, that's always the most fun thing. Like, let's build a board game. Or we have a video game that we play. Let's build, like, a website and make a clan and create this whole thing. Yeah. And so once I started learning how to code... It was just this whole new world of things that I could build now. Anything that I did needed a website. Like any, if I'm taking notes for a class, I need a better note-taking app than the one that I have right now. So I have to build that. (laughs) So I got like a whole folder. Oh, so that was a startup. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could have you could have done well with a notes app, man. I could have big ones now. Yeah, I wasn't even really turned on to the startup scene back in college. I was just building stuff because it was fun. But I didn't I didn't know very much about Silicon Valley or tech companies. And, And MIT is a very academic place. People had a lot more respect. Or the computer science-y version of things rather than like that, you know, the industry go out and like try to make money or build something useful for a lot of people. So more like theoretical stuff? Yeah. Well, it's just like the computer. It's just, yeah, like, you know, how do you write, how do you optimize these algorithms and invent new algorithms? How do you, like a lot of, there's a lot of AI research focus. So that was my concentration. And I, I had like some professors who were like titans in the AI world, but it didn't fascinate me that much because it seemed like there was a lot of research going on and not a lot of concrete application, at least at the school. And so uh, you know, compared to some place like Stanford where like everybody and their mother at Stanford is like starting an app or trying to like make the mm-hmm. next startup, et cetera. So when I finally discovered that scene late in college, I was completely smitten. I read everything that Paul Graham wrote. I was like super obsessed with like every company and Y Combinator and all these startups. Uh, and it, it kind of got me even more, kind of accelerated my mindset of like, I need to build something new and like create new apps and such which only further contributed to my academic decline as well. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of stuff were you making at that point when you learned about what was happening on the West Coast? Uh, I ended up getting a lot of contracting jobs, actually, because my thinking was, okay, I want to build an app. I don't have any investors or any confidence that I'm going to be able to raise money. So what I need to do is be a contractor, and then I can like kind of fund my lifestyle and do whatever I want and have free time on the side. So I, I started doing that. I started trying to gear my classes towards things that I wanted to build. So my senior year, we had, you basically do this project to graduate with a degree in computer science. And I worked with these grad students, and our project was this ranking algorithm for email. So when you would get email, it would try to tell you 
is this email important? You know, do, do you need to open this or not? And it was actually a, a almost impossible problem, like because even a human can't necessarily tell you whether or not an email you get is important. But I had a lot of fun building like this whole email client from scratch, et cetera, et cetera. So we entered this business plan competition, the MIT 50K Arab business plan competition, which is not very well known. But both of my, my founder, co-founders on this were from Saudi Arabia. So we ended up being a finalist. They flew us out to Dubai. We tied what? for first place and I got 25K. And so I lived off that for a year in Boston, <laughs> <laughs> just like hacking on this email app that went, that went nowhere, really. Oh, no. What happened? We ran out of money after the 25K ran out. But, you, uh, you couldn't make 25K uh, uh, last for lasted, a bunch of people building an app? It lasted one year, exactly. That's actually really impressive. Yeah, it was. we, we scrimped. Yeah. <laughs> but we ended up turning it into this app called Cipher, which it was like we spelled it S-Y-P-H-I-R. It was like the hardest to spell thing. Hard to spell, hard no to pronounce. No one ever called it Cipher. Yeah. It was like Cipher, Saphir. But it was like this advanced filtering app for Gmail. So you could do things like, Say, hey, if I get an email with more than 10 recipients, I want you to hide it from my inbox until, you know, next Thursday afternoon. Or like 100 different crazy things like that. And people were super excited about it, but we didn't charge any money and we ran out of money and that was that. Hmm. The startup model. Never startup charge model. money, just run out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't charge any money and then, and then go down in flames. Is that an idea that's still interesting to you? Kind of. It's been a while in this whole email productivity space. <laughs> yeah. And it's like that... That space is a graveyard. There are so many people trying to but build people better email keep apps. Throwing themselves into that just yeah. pit of death, right? It's something alluring about a problem that other people haven't solved successfully. That but especially on a is, standard format. Yeah. <laughs> on a standard format that's existed for forever. And yeah. Like email's huge. Everybody uses email. I'm familiar with it. I hate it. No one's built a successful email startup. I'm gonna be the one. But there's a reason that not many people build successful email startups because they're hard to get right. So I Threw away a couple years of my life trying to do things like that. I don't want to say threw away because I learned a ton. I spent like the entire time learning how to, you know, how to deploy an app and get on TechCrunch without your servers going down. You know, how to handle thousands of incoming emails a day, et cetera, et cetera. In hindsight, what would you have done differently if you wanted to like actually make that a thing? So you ran out of money. Yeah. But that's a solvable problem. The Mm -hmm. money part. Did you? trying to <laughs> raise money. If I had done something, if I had gone back and done something differently, I probably would have just started charging people for it. Huh. That's <laughs> a is, weird business I model. I know, it's a totally <laughs> novel any, idea. Doesn't make any sense. Who does that? Who charges money? Yeah. Uh, it would have been cool, actually, because we would have gotten many fewer signups and we would have been able to probably handle the load a lot better and actually make some money from people who, who found business value. But uh, we didn't do it and we died. And so I decided that I was done living in Boston, and I was going to kind of move out to San Francisco on a whim and just figure it out. So I moved out here with like what savings I had left from my contracting jobs, and I got an apartment with my brother and a couple friends from MIT, and I just started hacking on basically the same version of the same app, or a different version <laughs> of the same app, but with like a few changes, because I just had no ideas. I was so like, it didn't really die. No, it didn't really die. <laughs> okay, like, I'm going to do okay. something different, but then I started doing the same thing. And uh, <laughs> I your phrasing here is all over the place, but <laughs> yeah, I think died, but I you know I had an resuscitated intention. it, resuscitated I had an intention, it. and then I had an, a plan of action. Yeah. And they were completely opposite. Okay, but I went on Hacker News while I was here, and I met this guy Nick, and he was working on a different email related app called Task Force, and so Task Force let you convert emails into to dos inside of your Gmail inbox, 
et cetera, and assign them to people. And he had just lost his co-founder. And so he was posting on Hacker News asking for a new co-founder. I was kind of twiddling my thumbs working on the same thing that I'd been working on for the last year. And we met up in San Francisco and decided to work together. And we ended up getting into Y Combinator, which completely changed everything. Because now I actually had funding and this kind of kick in the ass to go. Uh, for people who don't know what YC is? So YC is, I guess the, the best term is an accelerator. So this guy, Paul Graham, started Y Combinator because he wanted a way to kind of fund a lot of smart people to start startups rather than just funding one person at a time. And so the first batch of YC, I think, was only like a small handful of eight companies where he just gave them all $20,000 or so and helped them with their ideas, et cetera. By the time I did Y Combinator in 2011, we had like 40 companies in our batch that apply, that got funding from Y Combinator. And they were doing everything from chat room software to catering services to what we were doing with email. And so it was, it was pretty prestigious to get in. I think they accepted like 1% of applicants. And I remember the way that we felt when we got in was as if we had just created a successful company. Like, <laughs> we're rich. <laughs> yeah, we were basically like, yeah, we did it. Like, we got a couple of cigars and we were smoking on my doorstep. <laughs> and we went out for drinks and celebrated and it was this big thing. But it, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it meant nothing. You know, that company eventually failed. Uh, but it, it gave us the runway and the finances to really be able to work on it for years and not have to get jobs. And I think that's being, the key. That's key. the key. <laughs> the key is to never get a job. <laughs> Uh, so I ended up working on that for like a couple years while I was in San Francisco. Did you guys raise more money? Nope. We never raised any money after Y Combinator, but... Wait, what? How'd we you last were, a couple years with 20 grand? So when we first got in, it was 20 grand. And then about halfway through Y Combinator, they called us in and they're like, hey guys, we have a secret. Uh, everybody needs to come to the office on like a Wednesday night or something. So we drove down an hour to, to Palo Alto or whatever. And we went to the YC office and they had one of those telepresence robots kind of scooting around the office with everybody there. And this like Russian guy was on the monitor. This guy's name is Yuri Milner. He's been on the news recently for being like the conduit for Russian money coming into like US tech startups, whatever. But at the time he was like, hey, I'm going to invest $150,000 into all of your companies, no questions asked. And that was another <laughs> that was another cigar night and celebration night uh, for the two of us and for everybody else. So we made that last for quite a while. Jesus. Yeah. It was <laughs> crazy. He just like was zooming around and he had this thick Russian accent <laughs> and he was meeting people and talking to people and it was just, yeah, $150,000. This is crazy. Yeah, it was nuts. So, and so what do you do with 150 grand? You go home and you go home and change you, the way you go about your business? We didn't change anything. We just said, okay, well now we've got like infinite runway, basically. We were paying. Uh, <laughs> we could probably retire now, actually. <laughs> yeah, this is it. That's it. We're done. My my uh, co-founder had this rent-controlled apartment, so we were paying something like two thousand dollars a month for a three-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. Oh my god! Which is like that a is great deal for wonderful. San Francisco. It's unheard of. So we made that money last for like. By the time I quit, there was still money in the bank, and we had tried several different ideas and pivoted, all, you know, to, to different things, and none of it had worked out. But I learned a lot during that time, and I think being in a situation where you're the only programmer working on an app and any sort of bug or feature or issue that comes in you have to fix was it turned me into i guess what you call it a unicorn because mm-hmm. i had to do all you of have it. to do everything yeah the design is ugly i have to get better at design the code is bad you i have gotta to get, get better, better at code fixing so nick bugs. was non-technical nick was non-technical he did everything else did you guys consider hiring 
We tried. Okay. <laughs> when you have 150k between two people in San it's Francisco, like it's not still, yeah, realistic. you have to hire on a budget. It's not very realistic. And we really would have needed to raise more money to hire somebody reliably. And so did you try and go down that path? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I feel like I'm really just putting salt in some old wounds. Oh huh? no, I mean that story was just there was a lot of failures. I mean, there were some successes too. A lot of people used the apps that we built. A lot of people tried it. We got a lot of good feedback and we both learned a lot. But we were kind of torn between this path of, do we try to get millions of users in the door for free? Or do we try to put a price tag on what we're doing and just sell it to like a reasonable number of people? And if you're in Silicon Valley, there's a ton of pressure to go the former route. Yep. I mean, all the examples that you see are Facebook. Facebook didn't charge money and everything was free and they figured out their business model later. Everyone you guys points do the same to Facebook. Thing. I don't know why, but... Like, let's point right. to this one yeah. once in a eon <laughs> outlier of companies. Exactly. <laughs> as an it's example like, for everyone exactly. else. <laughs> but if you're like, no one's talking about anyone else, then like, that's like your whole world and that's the path to success. And of course, like all the people who are investors, like if you try to raise money, you need to spend a story that's going to explain how you're going to be the next Facebook. So in 2012, you know, unless you're going to be the next Facebook or Twitter, uh, having a business model is not really cool. What you need to do is get millions of users in the door, right? which it <laughs> turns out doesn't work for most apps. So we kind of struggled with that. And then we had, on the other hand, like some role models who were charging for what they were doing. So there was this company, Wufu, based in Florida that was mm-hmm. just making forms, like a form builder. And their form builder website was super fun and well-designed and like had all sorts of crazy animations with dinosaurs and stuff. But they just charged money for it and made a healthy living. And we thought that was super cool too. So we were kind of torn. We didn't know which direction to go in. And I think oscillating between one and the other just made us bad at both of them. Uh, and we weren't able to raise money. We weren't able to get uh, enough users to get attract investors. And we weren't able to make enough money from selling what we were building to really pay for like a comfortable lifestyle for either one of us or grow the company. So, And I think 2014, I decided that I was done. I was done working 80-hour weeks for the startup that wasn't going to survive, and I was just going to quit. So I just quit and started doing contract work. Can you talk a little more about that decision to quit? Like, that's a big was, deal, right? It was so out of nowhere. Like, I was surprised, like, a week later, like, holy shit, I just quit. Uh, Did you just wake up one day and you're like, calling it, done? Yeah, I think we'd just been in the, like, we tried so many different things to grow and to succeed, and they just weren't working. And we never really discussed quitting or giving up. But I think one week, it was just on my mind a ton. I thought, you know, I don't think we're going to succeed here. I've given a couple years of my life to this. I feel like the world is kind of passing us by. We're doing something. We're working on an idea that we had years ago. There are newer and better ideas out. There's all sorts of new technologies that I don't even understand as a programmer because they came out while we were working on our startup and I'm using old stuff and I would like to learn uh, I see a lot of my developer friends making a lot more money, taking jobs, et cetera. I know I have the same skill set, and yet I'm paying myself barely enough to survive. And I kind of did the calculus and said, it doesn't make any sense for me to continue doing this. Like, I don't think we're going to succeed. And if you're working on something that's taking up all of your life and you're making sacrifices to your friendships and relationships, et cetera, to do that, and you don't think it's going to work out, suddenly it becomes very enticing to, to stop. And so I, I told Nick that, hey, this is the end of of my time working on what we're doing and I'm going to go my own way. And I think he paid me to help kind of transition things as a contractor. He was my first contracting <laughs> client. Sweet gig. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And I just spent the next couple years. Did you charge just... him more than what you're getting paid? No, actually. Okay. The rate that he paid me, I was like, this is a solid rate. I think I'm going to charge everybody. <laughs> okay. and so that's what I did for a couple of years. Nice. Um, one thing that comes up is 
most people who start startups could be making more money elsewhere,、mm-hmm. but they don't care because they have some belief in some other thing. It's like, like fanatical belief. Yeah, like how how did you think about that? Because you do have a skill set where you could go work at a, a Google or a Facebook and make buku bucks, but maybe there's something. Well, what I did more appealing to you when I saw a forum thread online about people discussing their salaries at Google and Facebook, I would ignore it. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to know it's yeah, true. <laughs> I don't want to see it. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, but also like I've just always put a high premium on freedom and freedom in every sense of the word, like freedom to. Work whatever hours I want, even if it's more hours than normal. Freedom to work from wherever I want on whatever project that I want.、Um, financial freedom, the ability for the money that I make as a result of my work to be commensurate with the work that I put in, versus working for a company where there's sort of a cap, and you could be the world's most badass employee, but your salary needs to fit within a specified range. So I think even though the the promise of more money by getting a normal job was always there. I knew that I would get bored and upset by living that sort of life, and I would rather sort of struggle and and if that meant that I could have more freedom and and get the ability to work on whatever I wanted. And so for you, that looked like contracting. For me, contracting was a compromise because with contracting, I was still working on other people's projects, but at the very least, I could set my own schedule. I was a remote contractor, so I would work from home, and I was always just working on other projects on the side and. and Improving my skill sets and just doing whatever it was that interested me. So I kind of rationalized to myself: okay, I'm working for other people, but at the very least, I've got a semblance of freedom. And whenever I want to, <laughs> I have the illusion of freedom. Yeah, I've got the illusion of freedom, <laughs> and I can set my own schedule. And、yeah. whenever I want to, I can just stop and do、yeah. something else. I think that was really the ideal job for me. And it, if I hadn't done contracting, if I had just gotten a normal full time job, I'm not sure I ever would have started Endy Hackers or ever quit that full time job. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, like that's one of the reasons that I ended up doing what we're doing now. Like we're、mm-hmm. doing a startup, and I left Facebook. And the question is, like, well, like how is it leaving Facebook? Do you work more? Do you work less? And it's like work more, more. work harder.、Yeah. It's more stressful,、uh-huh. but it's my own. Like it's self induced <laughs> because I believe in the thing, not because were people at Facebook、forces. supportive of you leaving, or how did yeah? Did they look at you like you had two heads? Or,、yeah. no. There was a there was a little of that. No,、nah, mostly, ah,、uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I saw quite a bit of it. It's interesting in in tech circles because it's so common for people to leave and start startups, but at the、mm-hmm. same time you have like these really good careers at these bigger companies,、mm-hmm. and so it's it's interesting to see which people are like, oh yeah, of course you're going to leave to start your own thing. I'm thinking about the same thing. Other people who can't even imagine leaving, you know, the corporate world and their cushy job. Yeah, I think in my experience, people are like. People I've talked to and had real conversations with、uh-huh. are like secretly jealous of like <laughs> being able to do that. I guess like it's、mm-hmm. a, it's in a position of good fortune and, and privilege that we can even have this conversation.、They're、like oh yeah, just work on my own shit, have this freedom. Yeah, it's、uh, it's it's really enticing. I think it's probably more enticing from the outside looking in. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one sees the drudge work. They just、uh-huh. they just see the good parts. Like oh, you're free and you're doing your own thing and you don't have a boss. Yeah, what's that? And then like, you're like, well, yeah, but I. Debugged an infinite loop somewhere in the code for eight hours today. So, <laughs> who really had a better day? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and you acclimate to whatever it is that you're doing as well. So, you know, the, I think the initial excitement of going from a full time job to doing your own thing is probably massive. Totally. Like a year later,、totally. you're just like, yeah, this is just normal life. Yeah. When you went to contracting,、uh, you said you wanted to pick up 
other skills or learn learn new stuff. Mm-hmm. And I found that for me, when I have that opportunity, it's like, all right, I got some time. I'm going to go learn a thing. There's so many things, and I have no idea what to choose. Yeah. So I end up just like kind of haphazardly like, oh, this technology seems interesting, or mm-hmm. maybe I'll in- look into this language or something like that. I had did a you list. have a you had a, yeah? How did you prioritize like come list. up with what was most interesting and what you wanted to invest in learning? It was almost all programming stuff because as I was coding this app, like the code base got bigger and larger. And for anybody out there who's like a front end developer, you're well aware that the speed at which things move is like extremely rapid. Every day there's a new framework or a new technique or a new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm watching like life pass me by and I see all these cool new toys and things that I as a programmer wish I could use. But at the same time, I have this business with all sorts of demands and I'm trying to make it succeed. And I don't have time to just play around with like fun new programming tools. So I, by the time I quit, had a list a mile long of things I wanted to try. And I just did, like I used all of them to build like the most rink-eating projects. I didn't even care. I just wanted to try them sure. and, and see what it was that I was missing out on. What was at the top of your list? React, Angular, yeah. <laughs> Ember, <laughs> just a ton of like front end. Want to do the same thing three different ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, which one is which one? One of these is the best. So I. Uh, Which JavaScript is best? Yeah, and uh, honestly, there it doesn't even matter. It's just <laughs> your own personal style. But uh, I was pretty excited to try all those different things. I was excited to try eventually a new startup. Like I knew the contracting wasn't going to be permanent, but I was kind of burned out, and I had spent like four, I think, four years of my life just working like insane hours and not really living life. Mm-hmm. And if you work crazy hours, especially if you're devoted to a startup, it's really easy to neglect other things. Uh-huh. And the thing that really irked me the most was, like, you guys have heard of like the flow state. You get into the state of like yep. just in the zone. All you like, all you see is the code, or all you see is the design. And time passes super fast. For me, the flow state was a double-edged sword because I would be super productive all day, but then you don't really make new memories. You know, like what happened last Thursday? I don't know. I just coded. What happened in 2014? I don't know. I just <laughs> I just coded. Every all, day was all the same. my days since then have blurred together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's exactly what it was like. And I was like, you know, what? you can only be like 24 once, and I don't want my memory of nope. 24 to be <laughs> just the computer monitor, yeah. and that's it. So I really wanted to take a break, like meet people, make new memories, and enjoy my 20s. Besides just working all the time on the same things, uh, and then maybe later get back to it. Yeah. What does burnout look like for you? Burnout for me, <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> okay. It's uh, it's a lot of, I wear my bathrobe around the house. I got this like nice comfy <laughs> bathrobe and slippers. Don't shave. Yeah. I don't, I, luckily I don't have to shave very much. Oh, uh, yeah. I only recently started growing facial hair. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like pretty lazy with the showering. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I watch a lot of anime. It's from a little my couch. stinky. Yeah. Yeah. A little stinky. Watch a, little, a lot of anime from a couch. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Exactly. A lot of, a lot of pizza. So burnout looks like perpetual weekend. Yeah, perpetual weekend. And (laughs) for me, I think uh, I have like this energy where I always want to create stuff. Like when I wake up, the first thing in my mind almost every day is like, oh, what am I going to build? Or this thing that I started building last night, like I can't wait to finish it. Burnout for me means that feeling is completely gone. I look at the things that I cared about the week before and I'm like, why did I even care about that? Why did I care about building that? Why did I care about succeeding? And that feeling horrifies me because it's like this black pit of, of like depression. Like what is the meaning of life at all? You know, why... Why was I the person that I was yesterday? So whenever I get burned out, I get a little bit scared because the thing that keeps me going and that I think kind of defines my personality, which is making new things, is gone. I resonate with that a lot, that feeling. Yeah, it's weird. I hate it when it goes week to week, though. Like, 
this week, like why I'm even doing this. But then the previous week or the next week, you're like fucking stoked. Like yeah. everything's <laughs> great. I'm like doing all this cool stuff. I wish I had like a formula. <laughs> I've always wanted to have like some sort of app. And I'm sure there are apps out there that just like tracks every variable in my life. So I could figure out like, okay, what it's is called, it that causes me yeah. to feel this way? Hmm. Because what do you think it is? I don't know. My my girlfriend is extremely like she's very well connected to her body. So she could eat like a whole meal and then feel bad later and she can be like, oh, it was the carrots. The carrots did it. Or so I can eat any, like it took me like 25 years to learn that if I eat a lot of food that I get sleepy. Like I have no connection whatsoever. <laughs> so like I'm very bad at like looking at what's going on in my life and seeing how that connects to like how I feel. So I had I, four cups of coffee today, a Red Bull, a bag of chips, and uh, <laughs> and I, I feel like two hours last and night. And I feel like shit. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, <what's> <laughs> Maybe I need to go for a walk. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> or other people would be like, oh, every time I run a mile in the morning, I feel great. The rest of the day, I'll run a mile. I feel absolutely no different. I feel nothing. So I don't even know what causes me to get burned out. Sometimes I'll work like tirelessly for months and feel nothing. Sometimes I'll have one like super hard week and that'll just be it for me for me it's losing focus like losing yeah. focus like instant burnout hmm. you know like once you like can't like think of how to do a thing it's like okay well i'm not getting anything done i'm just trying to figure this thing out and like and yeah. eh, never mind yeah you know what's tough for me sometimes out of all the work that i do is design work because with code it's like you're always sort of moving forward. Maybe you have to learn something. <laughs> well, design well. work. <laughs> design. Like maybe I'm just a crappy designer, but when I'm designing, I'm just like constantly throwing things away. I'm like, that looked crappy. Next. That's the that process. That's Next. like the worst part of the process. Is yeah. like at, uh, the end output is an image of a UI. Like it is mm-hmm. lost. Yeah. Unless you're like illustrating or whatever. It just, it just feels like I could spend two days on a design and not be any further than where I was in the beginning, except I know what doesn't look good <laughs> hmm. versus coding. Like, no matter what, I'm probably, I very rarely end up throwing away two days worth of work. So I think sometimes that gets me a little bit down. Uh, but then it ends up being worth it in the end if you make something that you can be proud of mm-hmm. that looks good because you tried a bunch of things that didn't. Sure. But yeah, still not, not, not super in tune with what it is that gets me burned out and what it is that gets me super excited every day. Maybe it's the carrots. It might be the carrots. I don't eat too many carrots, but when I do, I'll, I'll start paying attention. <laughs> the next day, man, you're going to go into a deep funk. <laughs> uh, so how long did you contract for? Two years. Two I spent years. two years contracting, and then I started to get antsy. Yeah. I started to... Well, I was contracting for this one really awesome client. He basically came in and said, hey, we saw what you did with Task Force which is the app that I did YC with, and you basically build the same thing for us. And so it was, again, doing the same app that I had just quit. But this time with money. <laughs> this, time, this time with money. And I had my You're like, thoughts. this is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, I'll do this. And so it was a pretty, like, it was my, like, as far as jobs went, it was like my dream job, even though I didn't really have a dream job, where I could just work on my own hours. I designed it. I built it. I basically created the spec myself, and I was getting paid to do it, whether it succeeded with the market or not. But the company didn't end up didn't end up succeeding. They didn't do very well because they didn't charge anybody money for their app. Huh. Uh, <laughs> Seeing a pattern develop here. Yeah, huh? yeah, that's a pattern. And once the company folded, I started thinking, okay, do I want to take on new clients or do I want to start another startup? And I was definitely leaning towards the other one because I'd just been antsy. I'd spent two years not doing anything ambitious, two years not really trying to build an app that I could be proud of, and two years working for other people. So... That was about the limit of how much time I could spend doing that. So what did you do? What I did was I started doing random projects again. And 
I didn't exactly have an organized process. I was just excited to be done contracting. Like, I'm done. I can do whatever I want. I started making this app to help me track my finances. And so it's like every time I would get a new charge on my credit card, it would pop up a notification on my, my phone and I could categorize it. And after like three weeks developing that, I got bored. <laughs> I was like, this is not that fun. I'm not that passionate about it. And I'm not sure I can make any money with this. And so I started looking for an idea that could both be successful and that I would enjoy working on. So I came up with this kind of checklist of like eight things that any idea that I was going to work on had to have. So it had to be something that I could personally find a market for and, and find customers for. It had to be something that my mom can understand if I explained it to her because I was tired of working on things that were like some sort of task management tool for programmers. Uh, it had to be something that had a positive impact on the world so that I could be proud of working on it and not be ashamed because if you're going to choose your own idea to work on, like, why are you going to build something that people hate? Uh, I had a whole list of things. The other ones are more involved with, can I make it successful? Can I launch it in like a few weeks rather than taking six months to do it? And I also had this giant list of project ideas. And so I kind of went through this list of project ideas and I matched everything against my checklist to see anything that would match. And I had this list for years, like three or four years. I was just building up this list in the background and nothing on that list matched my checklist. Like everything was only like three or four boxes out of eight. Any common things that like every single one missed for you? Uh, there weren't very many that I could launch really quickly. There were like super involved ideas that like maybe would be cool, but would require tons of money and funding and a whole team to build. There weren't very many that I was confident that I could find a market for. I was like, okay, I could build this. And I put this on my list because I think I could build it, but I don't know who's going to use it, where I'm going to find these people, how am I going to get convince them to pay for it, et cetera. So... I ended up having to kind of go back to the drawing board and start from scratch, which is pretty depressing if you've kept this giant list for years because you're like, oh, I can't wait till the day comes where I can go through this list. And then to find out that it's pretty much worthless. Uh, <laughs> my list was bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my list was, I, I messed up. Uh, so I, I decided that, all right, well, I know a place where a lot of people hang out who have built companies, kind of like the one that I want to build, that match the items on my checklist. And it's this message board called Hacker News just created by the Accelerator Y Combinator that we mentioned earlier. Uh, I knew from just hanging out there that people would go on Hacker News and share stories at least once or twice a month about the companies that they would build. So someone would make a thread saying, hey, everybody in Hacker News, what are you building? How are you making money? And people would just share stories like, hey, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I would read these obsessively. And I could tell that other people were also reading these obsessively because you could see all the comments and questions and upvotes that these stories and threads were getting. So I spent like two or three days doing nothing but reading these threads and trying to use the ideas that other people had to kind of kickstart my own ideation process and come up, come up with an idea that I could work on for myself. And so where did that lead? That led to, <laughs> number one, it kind of drove me crazy because spending <laughs> like two days doing nothing but brainstorming is taxing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever sat down just in like an hour of nothing but brainstorming, but you get tired. Uh, I did it for like two days and by the end I was seeing stars. But I got a lot better at coming up with ideas. And I realized that coming up with ideas is kind of like a muscle where if you don't exercise it, then you're not that great at it. But if you just like sit there and work it out for hours on end, you eventually start coming up with like a lot better ideas. How and do you get better at that? I don't know what the what's, process like, what's is. The, if it's a muscle, what's the exercise? Right? The exercise is is trying to come up with ideas <laughs> and throwing them out. Like I probably came yeah. up with like 100 ideas yeah. in like two days and they were mostly pretty bad. But if you look at like the tail end of that list, they were way better than the first ideas that I'd come up with. And the I ended quality up, improved over time. Yeah, the quality improved over time. And it was just because I kept trying to do it 
and failing at it and then recognizing why that idea wasn't good and getting better at it. And I think for a lot of people, myself included for most of my life, you kind of look at ideation as this thing where you just have a flash of insight. You know, Someone just has a great company idea and then that's it. But I think I learned after the result of that that in the future, I'm just always going to try for two or three days and see what happens because I know for a fact that I'll get better at it over time and you just have to push through the crappy parts of it. Hmm. But the end result was that I had three or four pretty solid ideas that I was excited to work on and that matched all of my criteria. And I wanted from there, it was just a matter of picking one to work on. What did you pick? I picked ND Hackers, which at that time... Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Oh, you came up with the name first? Well, I came up with the name, I think, a day or two after I picked it. But ND Hackers was like number one on my list and someone else owned the domain. And so I came up with all these other terrible, <laughs> terrible names that I'm glad I didn't go with. I had like wage hackers. Oh, yeah. Free, freedom hackers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're it's just not, it wasn't good. Yeah, all sorts of implications on those ones. Yeah, yeah, who knows. But I emailed the guy behind ndhackers.com who luckily wasn't using it. And I was like, hey, are you using this domain? And if not, can I buy it for like a small project I'm considering working on? And he was like, $2,000. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe like just a, just <laughs> just a tiny project. Just you know? a poor boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can afford that. I can give you like 500 And he's like, $2,000. And so I, I kind of sat on it and realized, okay, if I work on this idea, I want it to be called Indie Hackers. And the domain is available. I'm lucky that he's even selling it. And so I ended up shelling out the $2,000. And I'm glad I did. Otherwise, we would have wagehackers.com and nobody would have visited it. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. And so what was the idea that you'd written out on paper for what this thing should be? So the idea was that I had read all of these interesting stories about people starting companies to help me come up with ideas. And I could tell that some of the stories were a lot better than the other ones. So the ones that were the best were ones where the founders would talk about the personal narrative behind their story. And they would talk about how they came up with the idea. And they would be very transparent and share the hard times as well as the good times and even how much money they were making. Those stories got a ton of upvotes, a ton of comments, a ton of support. The stories that were worse just didn't get any of it. And so I thought, okay, everyone's interested in these stories. And having read them for like two or three days straight, I have a pretty good insight into what makes the better ones better. So why don't I make a website that kind of aggregates as many of these stories as possible I know the demand is there because I see people reading these stories elsewhere. I know where to find them because I've been reading the stories myself. <laughs> yeah. And I know that I can do a better job because right now the stories are completely unorganized. And if one person's kind of curating them and doing an interview, asking specific questions, I can get the exact information that I need every time. And so the idea was basically a better version of the stories that I had been reading myself. Hmm. And so how do you start that? <laughs> sending Co- out copy paste hacker news comments sending out a lot of cold emails so I, I when i was reading those stories at first i didn't like write down very much information besides my own ideas so i went back reread all the stories and tried to track down the people behind them which was hard because a lot of the names were just like dave hacker 539 i'm like okay what's this guy's email address dave hacker 539 at yeah. hotmail.com that was it every time <laughs> But I ended up building this giant Excel spreadsheet of names and email addresses and links to their comments. And then I didn't want to be spammy. So I I would custom craft every email that I sent and say, hey, I read your story about XYZ that you posted on Hacker News last week. I thought it was great. I like this part about it. How would you feel about doing an interview where you share some of the same information on my website, Uh, which, by the way, doesn't exist yet? (laughs) I sent out like 140 of these emails or something over a few weeks. It took me forever. Uh, But eventually 10 people... Not only said yes, 
but got back to me with their interviews and answered all the questions and, and did a pretty good job. So I made this basic website that was just 10 interviews with entrepreneurs, and each and every one of them said exactly how much money their company was making every month. Why was that important? I think it provided context. And in all the comments that I had read, if someone hadn't shared their revenue and yet had told an interesting story, the first question everybody had was, how much money are you making? You know, you've got this software that can 3D print you know, glasses. How much money does it make? Like, yeah. You say you're successful and you're financing your, your lifestyle. Like, if I want to copy this idea or I want to do something <laughs> I want to be successful, like you, yeah. yeah. Like, what, is it, what does it look like? Uh, and so I knew that if I wanted to stand out from other people who were doing interviews and stand out from like this content that was already online, like I should at least answer the question that everybody wants to know, which is a tough call because most of the people that I emailed were like, I'm not going to tell you how much money I'm making. Why would exactly. I do that? Exactly, yeah, why? Yeah, why would I share that? There's no point. But a lot of people were like, you know, I don't care. And I, if this will stand out and get me more traffic to my website, I'll do it. Or if this is a way for me to help other entrepreneurs who are trying to go through the same struggles that I've gone through, and I'll do it. And so I ended up with 10 pretty decent interviews in the beginning. What do you think separates the people who are maybe lackadaisical with giving out financial information and uh -huh. that degree of transparency versus the people who aren't, who say like it's a competitive advantage to know the size of the market or, or the, the path to revenue here? I think in the beginning, what I saw was a difference in ambition. And I don't mean to insult any of the people who uh, were the first people on Indie Hackers, but almost everyone who was on there at first was totally comfortable just having a nice business that provided for their lifestyle. Like They didn't have any dreams of becoming the next Facebook or the next Google. They didn't have a whole bunch of company trade secrets that they thought would kill their company if anybody knew. They were just like, hey, this is working for me. I'm living a great life. I wish more people were chill and would like live a great life. And so I don't care if someone knows my revenue. What's that going to do? Uh, versus some of the people that I emailed who refused to give out their revenue numbers were like, look, I've got all these grand plans. And if I tell anybody what I'm working on right now, then I'm going to be toast. And so they just wouldn't share anything. You know, they're kind of clammed up. It's changed since then. It's not, I've interviewed a lot of ambitious people who are going to pretty high places right now and growing super fast and don't mind sharing their revenue numbers. But in the beginning, that seemed to be the trend. Hmm. And so what was the, did you have like a longer term goal here? It's like, okay, you want to get these stories, interview these people, and then what? How does this become a thing for you? Yeah, so my plan was basically, I know I can get a decent amount of traffic from these interviews. I know that if I get a lot of traffic because I'm solving a problem for people who want to do research or who want to be inspired, that I can at the very least charge advertising revenue, right? I could... Other sites online that are content sites are, are making money from ads. It's not my favorite thing, but at the very least I can do that. And then maybe, just maybe, I can build up a community of founders who are helping each other and giving each other advice and feedback and support, at was, which point I can do a whole bunch of other things besides just charge for ads. So the community part was of interest from the start? The community part was the grand plan because I'm not a writer. I'm not a content producer. I'm a programmer. Like I never thought that I was going to do a particularly great job at interviewing people, but I did know that I could build a community site. And I did think that I could at least build the software and reach out to the right people to try to stoke the growth of a community site. And I thought that that would be more valuable and more fun for me and for people who were reading. So I launched with nothing but interviews, but I had this plan that was like, okay, a few months from now, I'm going to make a forum for this site. And I'm going to have a mailing list for this site. I'm going to hopefully have you know, a chat room for the site. Uh, in what ways did you learn from past failures here? 
as oh, you're God. <laughs> thinking about like how to make this sustainable? Well, a lot of the things on my my checklist were just taken directly from my past failures. Like, all right, I don't want to make anything or people aren't going to keep coming back over and over. Because in the past, I would make things and people would say, oh, that looks so great. I can't wait to use it. And they would try it once and then they were just gone. Yeah. Which is the most frustrating thing ever if you spent years building an app. So instantly I was like, okay, communities tend to grow. And as long as you have interesting discussions, people will keep coming back. Like I'm a part of tons of communities. I love chat rooms. I love forums. Like I want to build something that's, you know, interesting to people to keep them coming back. Mm-hmm. Also like working on things that weren't particularly fun. Like I don't know how many people have built to-do list apps, but it's not that fun and exciting to tell people about versus. If but they build, look good on dribble. They really do look good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to work on something that was fun and building a community of people who were starting companies was fun to me because it's something that I wanted to do. I was solving my own problem. Like I wanted to read all the interviews that I was doing. And in the past, I'd done the exact opposite and, and kind of gotten burned out. So I figured, you know, if this doesn't take off and it's not wildly successful, at the very least, I'll be doing something that I enjoy. And so I think a lot of like the rest of the things in my checklist were similarly just maybe even overreactions to mistakes that I'd made in the past. Yeah. And so now you do have the forum, you have uh, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously the interviews and then there's like other content now, right? So yeah, so doing a lot of stuff. How did all that? There's a ton of stuff. So one of the sites that inspired me was a site called Nomad List. You familiar yep. with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started by this guy, Peter Levels. He was almost always like the number one story on all of these, these discussion threads I saw where people talked about their companies. And what he did was he built basically a ranking of all of these different cities for digital nomads to travel to where he would score them based on internet speed and cost of living and safety and walkability, et cetera. And then he built a community around that. And then he built all these special travel-based tools for nomads after that. And so I thought that was a brilliant model. Like I wanted to build you know, these interviews that people could use to do research and learn. And then I wanted to build a community around that. And then I wanted to build tools to help people start their companies and help people help each other start these companies. And so today, Indie Hackers is, like you said, the interviews. Uh, a month and a half after I launched, I built the forum then that was September, I think, 2016. Then in February, I launched the podcast. And then in July of this year, I started doing articles. So mm-hmm. anybody can come on Andy Hackers and write an article, similar to the articles that you might write for Medium, but more related to entrepreneurship and your business. Because I kept getting requests from people who I had interviewed to say, hey, I've got more information to share, but it's like, you already did an interview. Like, where can you share it? Well, now they can come write an article. So it's kind of grown. There's been a lot of additions and there's a lot more to come in the future. Yeah, what's the next thing on your mind? The community. What does that mean? So I, uh, like a true programmer, decided that I was going to build all the community (laughs) software from scratch. I will do the forum. Yeah. (laughs) Stand back, BB Press. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think one of the things that was kind of like, I had three or four other ideas I was considering besides Indie Hackers. And the biggest thing against Indie Hackers was it was just doing interviews. I was like, where's the code? what point do I get to actually write some code? And so I told myself, all right, I'll allow myself to be responsible and create everything from scratch and that'll at least keep me entertained. And so I built the forum from scratch. I built the commenting system from scratch, et cetera. And so it was lacking a lot of things. Like if somebody replied to you, you wouldn't even get an email notification yeah. until like six months after I built the forum. So today what I'm doing is building user profiles, yeah. allowing people to follow each other and see each other's history, to message each other on the site. Yep. Uh, and I'm also building something that I haven't released yet called product timelines, where you can put up your product that you're working on in kind of a timeline format. 
So everybody on Indie Hackers, when they're talking, almost always are talking about the things that they're building, whether it's something that's in the idea phases or something that's already making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. They're talking about products. And there's no place on Indie Hackers for you to actually feature your product. And so I've looked at other sites that let you feature products, and they're very generally geared towards launching your products. Yeah, they're announcements, right? Exactly. Like what's, what's, you know, what's new, et cetera, what's launched, what's an announcement. I want to do something that was more persistent and useful over time. And so I'm building kind of this timeline interface where at any point in time you can come and say, okay, here on this date, here's a thing that happened to my product. And if you're something, you know, you're like a new founder, you can say, here is where I first registered my domain name or here's, you know, where I run into this challenge. Can somebody help me? And that'll go to the forum. Whereas if you're someone who's more established, you can say, here's when I hit this traffic milestone or here's when I launched this feature. Or, here's where I made this, you know, amount of revenue. So right now I'm just building sort of these backbone tools for the community so that the people who are talking have kind of supplementary information and they don't have to explain to everybody over and over again who they are and what they're working on. The thing that's crazy to me is you've been working on this for a little over a year. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is. <laughs> are you working, have you managed to find balance in your life or are you no. back to this like 80 hour a week? Oh, I'm like 80 hours a week for sure. I have zero balance. Is that okay? Like even though you know, <laughs> depends on who done, you ask. You, you've been down this path before, but <laughs> well, you know, it's much better to work. It feels much better working hard on something that's working. Yeah, <laughs> S- success makes a world of difference. It really does because it's like the very least. Even if I get burned out or I feel tired, like there's encouragement from other people, and I know that what I'm doing is helping someone, even if it's making my life imbalance and throwing things out of whack. And it, I have yet to really wake up any day and not feel excited to build something new. Whereas yeah. in the past, it's like, is anyone even using this? You know, you don't really want to spend 80 hours a week building something that nobody uses. It sucks. Yeah. Looking at traffic data, just, mm. yeah. it's like, oh, man, people are actually doing this. Okay, I know what to do next. <laughs> I, like, it, it helps just knowing that people are doing it helps you figure out, like, how to move forward. And yeah. it's the best. You know what's weird, though, is, like, there's something that's so, that's not that satisfying about numbers on a page, at least to me. So like I've I've helped some friends in the past learn how to code. And it's a very like limited impact thing. Like you're helping one person, it takes a lot of time and no one else in the world benefits from it, but it's so tangible because that person is like sitting across from you and they've learned how to do this new thing that they've never known how to do before. Versus if you start a website or a podcast and you you know your downloads increase or your page views increase, it's like a number ticks up on a page and it's like that's hundreds or thousands of extra people that you're reaching, mm-hmm. but like who are those people really? You know, if you yeah. can't see their faces and see what's going on, then it's really difficult to, at least I found, to like internalize that feeling of like, great, I've helped more people. Mm-hmm. I, I feel the exact same way. And for me, I, I don't know if it's just because like past a certain number, it, the number becomes too abstract. Like, so for example, today, a thousand people did this. Mm-hmm. Like, that's too abstract. Like a thousand people sounds like a lot of people. They're you don't know anything about them. But if one person emails me and is like, hey, like, I learned this thing or thanks for doing this feature or whatever. I don't know. It's just more tangible. And like, I, I resonate a lot better with that. And so for me, I have trouble looking at the analytics because uh, it makes me feel good or bad in like a very abstract way. Like if it's going up, I'm like, that's good, right? Yeah. And if it's down, I'm like, we're doing something wrong, right? Whereas seeing comments and emails and stuff, I don't know, like... Someone needs it's to make too, like a too specific, but like feels a, better for I me. I need like a visualization. Like if it's like ten people, I want to see like a room with ten people. You <laughs> yeah. know? If it's like a thousand people, I want to see like a giant auditorium or yeah. something. You know, if it's like a hundred thousand people, I want to see like March on Washington, like giant parade, <laughs> like just something crazy. So it's like, oh, it's like this is like roughly how many people I'm reaching. I think that would be 
more tangible. Yeah. But uh or just like a grid of millions of faces. Yeah. Or how yeah. many faces? I mean, that that still gets like intangible at some point, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> big numbers are just like hard to I think about like process. the diagrams of like uh star sizes and whatever, and it's like this many stars <laughs> in this cube, like Yeah. The earth is a pixel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, how, many, uh, how many pixels is that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't know. What's pixel? And yeah. then you start questioning the reality of everything around you. But those the, emails. The base ones can be like really positive. It's like, you have more users than the population of Mercury. <laughs> Good to go. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> well done. Make it a really big deal. <laughs> you made it. You're planetary. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you started in August, and then somewhere along the way, what was called Indie Hackers mm-hmm. became not Indie. Yeah, so... <laughs> what happened, man? Uh, I lost my spark. Yeah. No, 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 I'm just kidding. You didn't. But no, uh, you so, were acquired. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up getting into, like, kind of the story before getting acquired is I ended up getting into, like, ad sales. At some point, I was like, I should start making money for this. So I stopped hemorrhaging money, mm-hmm. uh, paying for rent in San Francisco. So I started doing ad sales in about December, really seriously. I think I made like $1,000 the first month, two or $3,000 in January, and then like you know, four or $5,000 in February. It was going up. And I was like, okay, this is great. I can afford my lifestyle. But it's also like terrible and soul-sucking to sell ads constantly. Huge time sink. Yeah, huge time sink. I was spending like half of my week just selling ads. And it's like, I wanted to do so many other things. I wanted to do features for the forum and I wanted to do an additional number of interviews and build all sorts of cool flashy stuff. But every hour of my time was like, I should probably sell ads so that I can, you know, pay for food. Uh, And I was very public about writing about this problem. Like I would talk to my mailing list and write blog posts about it and post on the Indie Hackers forum about it which is kind of cool because I was kind of using my product the same way that like I intended for other people to use it, just to share the problems and challenges mm-hmm. that they had with their business. And I got a lot of feedback from people about different things that I could do. Like, okay, why don't you charge money to access some of the interviews? And it's like, well, that's not going to work because it's kind of like disrespectful to the people that I'm interviewing to like put their interview behind like a paywall. Uh, why don't you charge money for this extra product? And like, so I had like a list of 100 things and I kept talking about it and nothing really stood out to me as being great. And so I was on a trip like early March uh, to a friend's bachelor party in Mexico, and I checked my phone, and I got an email, and it was from Patrick Collison at Stripe, and the title was Acquire Indie Hackers. <laughs> that is a hell of a subject line. <laughs> yeah. So I just like looked at it and like read it like three times, and then I, I opened the email, and he was basically like, hey, you know, how would you feel about joining Stripe? I think it would be really cool to have you. Uh, and so I was just like this has to be a mistake. Is he aware that Andy Hackers is like a blog <laughs> run by one person? You know I don't do payments, right? <laughs> <laughs> this better not be an aqua hire. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we ended up working something out in, in March and it took a few weeks, but by the end of it, we had a deal and Andy Hackers became a Stripe product. Mm-hmm. And so since then, I've been working on Andy Hackers full time, but for Stripe. And I immediately stopped selling ads because Stripe pays me a salary and I can work on doing nothing but building up the product, which is... Or you could work on nothing. Yeah, I could just work on nothing and then <laughs> tell everybody that I'm working on indie hackers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> until they find out. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, it's been... I want to say it's been a wild ride, but it, not much has changed. I mean, I still work from my apartment. I still uh, generally set my own direction with what I want to work on. I'm just getting... I have more time to do the things that previously I'd only just wanted to do. Yeah. And I have like the financial security to know that I'm going to be able to do it without 
really having to worry about running out of money or anything like that. Were you worried that the community you'd built would perceive this as oh, yeah. a selling out of sorts? Oh, yeah. Going against sure. the name of the product? Yeah. That you <laughs> if your built? name is ND Hackers <laughs> and you're catering to people building ND businesses and then you suddenly have a job. <laughs> you're just <laughs> forking fuck, what ND means. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but at the same time, it's one of those things. It's like, look, rationally, this is better for everybody. It's better for me because my life is more fun and easier. It's better for the website because it's got more staying power and has more attention on it. It's better for users because now the site that they like is not going to die. And it's not ad-based? Yeah, it's not ad. They don't have to read ads all the time. So it's just like, it doesn't matter what the name is. It's just better for everybody. So if I have to change the name, I will. But I think, you know, there was some skepticism at first and I was a little, I was a little bit worried. I think when we wrote the announcement blog post, I kind of had a defensive tone in it. I was like, yeah, I know it's indie hackers, but here's why it's going to be good. And then Patrick helped me rewrite it to be a little bit more positive. <laughs> Slow down. Uh, I think like I've done this before. Yeah. <laughs> most most acquisition blog posts these days is feels like a translation of like enjoy the next year because it's mm-hmm. going to be gone after a year. Like yeah. everyone says, you know. We're, we've been acquired by Google, and they're going to let us do our own thing. Uh-huh. And inevitably, in, in we'll a be year, sunsetting, but we're not going to tell you that yet. Yeah, every, yeah, everything gets sunsetted, including sunrise. God damn it, Microsoft! <laughs> uh, is that a concern for you? No, not at all. I mean, I think it depends on the type of like why your company is being acquired. Yeah. You know, and a lot of those companies are just being acquired. They're like, oh, we want to hire programmers. You have a team of programmers. The, the, the function of indie hackers is directly valuable to Stripe. That is which well. like, makes a world of difference. Exactly. Like Stripe is a company that number one has a very good reputation among mm-hmm. its users and developers in particular because its goals are aligned with theirs. Like mm-hmm. people want to make more money from their apps, and Stripe is constantly doing things to help people and their businesses succeed. And so it also has initiatives like Atlas, which is like, let's just inspire more people in the world to you know, make companies and remove the barriers that are stopping people from doing that. Yep. Like, that's something that everybody likes. And Indie Hackers is similarly inspirational to a lot of people. Totally. And so I think for a lot of acquisitions that companies do, it's kind of like, this thing needs to work in the next six months or otherwise it's doomed or whatever. But with Indie Hackers, it's like, as long as I'm helping inspiring like people to start businesses, then it always makes sense for Stripe. And since I'm not this like hulking behemoth of like a 20 employee company that like raised a bunch of money, it's not like suddenly it's going to not be worth it for Stripe to pay me to continue mm-hmm. working on indie hackers. So it's one of those things that like I'm, I have zero concern about like the long-term viability of it. And uh, I'm pretty confident that like with Stripe's help, it's going to be a much more positive force than it was with just me working on it. That's great. So now you, you've been acquired, you got told us a little bit about what's coming up Mm -hmm. uh what keeps you up at night these days what keeps me up at night (laughs) not very much because i I generally fall asleep coding (laughs) so the code yeah i I bring my laptop to i write really boring code code. (laughs) just like pass out (laughs) i think uh you know i want to like kind of my mission at stripe is i want indie hackers to be as big and impactful as possible i want as many people to use the site as i can and today it's about three times bigger than it was when I joined Stripe six months ago, which is great. But I think the things that worry me are the things that would worry anyone who's trying to grow something. You know, is the growth going to stop? You know, are those intangible numbers going to stop getting yeah, higher? Yeah. Right? Or is the new thing like the product timelines I'm working on is that going to fall flat? So I get like friends to try it and see like what they're posting and see mm-hmm. how they're using it and like anything that seems negative is like something that I'm worried about and I want to. I want to make it better. So I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. When I build something new, 
I definitely launch it way too late after it's been way too refined uh, because I'm afraid that I don't want things to fail. So I think things like that you know, keep me up at night uh, with, with scarecrows. <laughs> yeah. But uh, other than that, you know, I'm trying to find a little bit more balance in my life. Hmm. That's something that I need to do. I, I wish I had more time to read and, and do other things, but it's like when you have a project and there's only like one or two other people working on it, it's like there's infinite things to do. Whenever there's a free moment in my life, it's so easy <laughs> to be like, I need to do this thing for indie hackers. And so maybe one day I'll figure out how to have balance. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, gotchas in that sentence. Yeah, there really are. <laughs> It's uh, it's funny when you work a lot, you turn into this kind of work drone where yeah. you're interesting if you're talking about work, yeah, and then people talk to you about other things, and you're like, I don't even know <laughs> what is, yeah, what is other things. Who's the president again? Like what? <laughs> well, yeah, we don't well, talk yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I know that answer, but uh, I think I think hopefully a year from now I'll be a much more interesting and yeah. varied and. I don't know if you could be a diverse person, but I'll have much more diverse interests. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate to- it come chat with us and I'm really excited to see what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. That was 224. Thanks to Cortland for coming and hanging out with us. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. We're on Spectrum at spectrum.chat slash specfm. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and uh, share the episode around. Tell your friends, tell your family. Especially family. Especially This is really family. a family affair. This is, you should know that by this now. This is a family-friendly podcast. Well, well <laughs> <laughs> other than the swearing parts. Uh, also, huge thanks to our sponsors who made this episode possible. First up is Fuse. Fuse is a family product. Making it easy to design. Prototype families <laughs> develop in production. And ship families across all platforms with and by one, families we mean applications <laughs> one easy to use markup called dot ux uh well if you think about it an application is just a family of components holy shit i know get a better family at fusetools.com and look if you're working with a team and you're ready to upgrade your app development process use to the promo- a better family a bigger better family bigger better with, family time visual tools uh use the promo code dd if you're upgrading to that professional plan uh, that's going to save you 70% off of the, uh, a year's worth of that pro plan. But otherwise, it's available for free at FuseTools.com. Go check them out, click through the examples, and start building better apps today. Our second sponsor is TopLevel.Design. They are selling .design domain names. We use Spectrum.chat. We use Spec.fm. We don't use .coms. Because like, .coms don't. are impossible. impossible I I'm just Ugh. like, do you, you have a .com though? BrianLovin.com, baby. That's a premium name, though. You can't switch over. Yeah. It'll just cost too much. Everyone go to brianlevin.com. With a hyphen. And then once you do that... Uh, it doesn't have a hyphen, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't have a hyphen. No, but .coms are super hard to come by, and that's why Top Level Design is offering a deal to help you get a .design TLD perfect for your own personal name, portfolio, or whatever it might or be. Or if you work at a company and you want to put out a design blog, it's like the whole trend right now. Facebook.design. Facebook.design, Uber.design, Medium.design. And on and on. Uh, Go to porkbun.com and when you check out, use the promo code SPEC. That's S-P-E-C, all capitals. They've got a good logo. It's a little pig's butt in the shape of a pork bun. It's great. And on non-premium.design domain names, uh, you're going to get a $35 deal, which comes with who is privacy, SSL certs, and a year's worth of free hosting. And again, that's at porkbun.com. Use the promo code SPEC. Thanks once again to TopLevel.Design. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next week.